Pray then this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of God. Please be seated. As we reflect on the closing portion of the main body for the Lord's Prayer today, I think it would be valuable to reflect on prayer itself as Jesus is, well, praying right now. Now, this isn't the end of our series. Next week will be when our beloved Pastor Devo will be back with us out of sabbatical. Yes. That is awesome. He's going to close the series out on the doxology that ends the Lord's Prayer. But in the main body of our Lord's Prayer, I'd like for us to start by reflecting on prayer, which bids the question, what is prayer? What is it actually? Um, and, And what is its function in our lives? Is it what we do before... Uh, big events before the start of a project? Is it what we do before meals? You ever have to pray one of those, hey, you've got to pray for our meal prayer? My kids have gotten really good at it. When they were kids, they got a little bit out of control. My, my daughter reminded me this morning that one of the ways that she needs to do it is if I'd ask her to pray for a meal, she'd say, dear God, amen. <laughs> no. I've seen other children, and they're wonderful at it. Use a few more words. Is that what we do? Is that what prayer is? A dear God and amen. Is it the Christian version of letters to Santa Claus? I've been good for this amount of time. I've done this for you. I'm worthy of a gift or a present, Jesus. Would you give me my heart's desire? Is it the proverbial joystick that we try to manipulate to correctly control God's actions towards us? Is that what prayer is? Much of our prayer today is based on our needs because we are primarily, as Eugene Peterson would put it, working the self-conscious. In his book, Working the Angles, The Self-Conscious. That is, we have a stronger awareness of ourself, and that's just natural for all of us. When you're in a young adult, everything about your life is young adult. When you're a youth, everything about your life is youth. When you're married and your parents, everything about your life is children. This is just the way the world works because we are closest to our immediate community, our immediate needs. We are very self-aware. So when we pray, oftentimes, it is a self-conscious prayer. It is a prayer that is very conscious about the self. The problem with this is that we primarily pray in the self-conscious and we forget that this is really an activity that is God-conscious, that is God-reflecting. So we pray with self-consciousness without considering God conscience, and we consider other conscience when it is convenient to our lives. When the bettering of someone else near me helps me out, I remember them in prayer. When it's someone I like because we're friends, I remember them in prayer. 
But it's difficult to pray as Jesus would tell us to pray for our enemies. Because they are not convenient to our lives. Even when we try to be thoughtful, it can often just point back at us when we pray. If we're not thinking about it, if we're not intentional, when we pray, even, even prayers that are for others, they turn back towards us. I was reading a, a children's prayers this week, the way kids pray, and I was just looking around, and I went through a ton of them, and I just grabbed a couple here. I, I thought these two were uh, lighthearted and, and good for us to share today. So um, here, here's one. Dear God, thank you for the bro baby brother. And then immediately says, but what I prayed for was a puppy. You see how that turned back? Yeah, like God, praise the Lord. And you know it's going to be a bad prayer when, he, when, he's, when, the, when the, the older sibling says, the baby, not my baby brother. The baby brother, that thing. Thank you for that. But what I wanted was a puppy. Here's another one. Please help, Mom. Because she's really bugging me. Please help, Mom, God. Because really, it's going to be convenient and, and bettering for me, right? Children are so honest and awesome. And we kind of giggle and laugh about these cute prayers, but if we're honest with ourselves, as we get older, we keep the same kinds of prayers. They just mature. They're still self-aware, self-conscious. They're still about us in one way, in one form or another. If our prayers are mainly for our own benefit, it will always be frustrating and it will always feel unfulfilling because God cannot be controlled or manipulated by us. We, God is, is too big. God is, is beyond us. This infinite, this unlimitedness of God really binds us because we have limitations. We can only consider so much. We can only think about so much. And God is so much larger than that. So when we God, ask God for our finite uh, desire, our finite benefit, when we want that, we can't recognize what infinite implications that has on everyone else's life. Our prayers are unfulfilling because God does not work on our time schedule. We've all been there. We've all had to ask God for something. And we've tried to bargain with that. God, I, you know, I've been a good, you know, I've been good, God. I've been faithful. Lord, I've done all you wanted to. Please. Or I don't know if you've ever prayed, Lord, if you just do this one thing, I promise, dot, dot, dot. If you just Make this happen, I promise, I will never, or I will always, dot, dot, dot. We bargain with God. I used to do that all the time in high school, especially when I would come into algebra class. Algebra class would, would, would just pull the bargaining out of me for the Lord. I'd come in, and they, you know, there'd be some crazy announcement like, we have a test today. And it would be like, what? We have a test today. Well, I didn't know that. Well, it's been on the schedule. Dear Lord. If you would just, I would promise I'll always dot, dot, dot. And the teacher always prayed like this. God, would you help these students recall all that they have studied? I was much more spiritual than my teacher. I went all the way to Genesis, always. God, you who was in the void where nothing was, who brought something from nothing, would you pull something out of this nothingness? and create beauty, praise the Lord, amen. <laughs> Going through algebra and chemistry helped me realize I was gonna be a pastor. 
Praise the Lord. It is us. In our need to bargain with God for our benefit. In our need to jostle and try to control so that the infinite power will be at our disposal for our finite benefits. Gregory Boyd, in his book, Is God to Blame, writes this. When we go beyond this boundary and try to know what God alone can know, when we try to be wise like God, it destroys us. In trying to seize what properly only belongs to God, we lose what properly belongs to us. We forfeit our God-given authority on earth, giving it to Satan. Instead of being ruled by divine love, we become oppressed by diabolic power. The accuser turns us into accusers rather than lovers. Hmm. When we pray, what is the impetus of our prayer, collectively and personally? The work of prayer then really might have to be more meaning, meaningful and can be more meaningful if we allow God to form us through prayer. We might consider what Eugene Peterson sees it as when he says, prayer gets us in on what God is doing. Prayer doesn't get God into what we are doing. Prayer gets us into what God is doing. If we are to pray aright, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another great way to look at prayer, perhaps it is quite necessary that we pray contrary to our own heart. Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. The richness of the word of God ought to determine our prayer, not the poverty of our heart. Prayer. Prayer is not informative to God. Prayer is formative of us. It ought to shape us and mold us and not the other way around. We must be on the watch that prayer is forming us continuously. Because if we're not allowing prayer to form us, what we can fall into the habit of doing is then forming prayer. And the work of prayer is to jostle and to wrestle and to listen and to respond to God. God always speaks first. So prayer is our response to God's speaking into the world. Interesting to consider. If God answered all of our prayers today, would the world be any better or would it just affect our own situations? Praying, formative prayers. So, Jesus is creating formation in the Lord's Prayer. He's rounding it out. They've been on the mountaintop together. They've been on this Mount uh, 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 Olivet time with a group of people. And he talks about how the, the, the poor will inherit the kingdom 
He talks about the downtrodden, the peacemakers, the meek, the humble. And so you can see that he's flipping the script here. There is a collective formation of what it means to value each other. Don't just value yourself, but each other. And Jesus continues to prayer to pray. He continues to mold because what he is doing in this prayer is helping us form what it looks like to be good human beings. And in today's world, I think we need more more good human beings than ever. Let the church say amen. Man, oh, how I'd love to see more of our young adults coming out into the world, maybe a little less professional, but a lot better human beings. I don't care what my daughter and my son does when they graduate, as long as they don't move back home. Just playing. <laughs> if they're listening, you could always come home if you make enough money, praise the Lord. I care more for the kind of human beings they will be in this world than their titles. And I think the formation that Jesus is doing in the Lord's Prayer is a work that helps people become more formed to be good human beings, to just be better people. And I think if we could just be better people, the world would be just completely a nice place to live. I think we would, uh, evangelism would be much better if what we trained everyone to do was how to be good human beings. Jesus didn't come to show us how to be better saviors. Jesus came to show us how to be better humans, how to have better community. As my friend Dr. Gerard Kamene put it this week in our conversation, try to try and be a savior to others, and I would add to myself, is to overstep my responsibilities. I am not to save the world. You, here's the good news. Church, you don't have to save anybody. Turn to somebody and say, it's not your job to save somebody. Unless you're a doctor, of course. That is your job, quite literally. Please save people. Please. It's not the, it's not the, the church's job to sit in that judgment seat. It's not our job to save. That is God's job to save. It allows us then to be his disciples who follow and reflect, reflect upon his life that would make us better people. So the Lord's Prayer is a dance between us and God and others. It's this triune dance that we begin to have. And I know it's, it's interesting because we think of the, the, our, our God, the Trinitarian uh, uh, idea, and we think about the triune God. This is much like that. This is a dance. This formation in the prayer is a dance between us, God, and others. So here we land on verse 13 where Jesus says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, pyrasmos. This is the Greek word, pyrasmos. Everybody say pyrasmos. Good, 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 good. It could mean temptation or trial. Hence, you'll see it in different versions. Lead us not into temptation, lead us not into trial. Uh, but both of these words, these English words, um, can mean pyrasmos. And so, pyrasmos is the idea of uh, trying to or getting into something. It's, it's the idea of, of not slipping but being in the presence of a trial or a temptation. When we are in connection with God and with others, our abilities 
to stand firm through trials and temptations go up. Parasmos. An interesting word because I think that when trials and temptations, they have close relationships. When we're going through trials, it often causes us to have different kinds of temptations. Parasmos is also found in another story that centers around a different kind of community. We see it again just a little bit earlier, two chapters before, in fact, chapter four. We see it when Jesus is being tempted, when the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is called the Trinity. Perichorosis. And this is how perichorosis works. It is a triune body that has lived communally, that interacts, dwells within each other in a symbiotic and beautiful way to create good life. It's a dance. Some will recognize this as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Others might recognize as Jesus, the Son, uh, the Creator, and Holy Spirit who empowers. Some, some see it as the Holy Spirit as the Mother, and God the Father, and Jesus the Son. We, we, we've, we've named this and termed it and coined it in different ways, but it is the three in one, and they find a way to dance through the universe. They find a way to connect and move and be a part of each other as one. Perichorosis. Here's a better picture of it. Because it's kind of a diagram. This is a better showing of it. It's a dance. That's weird for Adventists because we don't know how to dance very well. We're awkward. But it's a dance that happens. It's dynamic it's moving, it's changing, and it's ever beautiful, constantly weaving between all moments so that life is better. I have a wonderful illustration. I'm going to invite up our, our youth here to come up. Let's give our youth a big round of applause. <laughs> Calvin, Eva, Ty. This is an illustration we used in uh, one of our classes in the fall. Pastor Steve loved to use it, and so I'm going to use it for Pastor Steve. Shout out to him. Um, he talks about what a community is, is a reflection of the Trinity. It's the reflection of this perichorosis, right, where there's this beautiful dance where each always points to the other, to the Father, and the Father points to the Son, and the Son points to the Father, and the Holy Spirit does all this work together. And so he, he gets students up, and, and I want you guys to just kind of go in a circle. And he says this, when the community is working correctly, we will always have each other's back. Now, so, yeah, okay, that's pretty good. That's not bad. I want you to do, just turn like that, yeah, yeah, and I want you to turn this way. And I want you guys to put each other on each other's back. Put your hands on each other's back. There you go. And then, Ty, can you do that to Eva? Oh, smart. These kids are smart. Look at them. This is what it means to have each other's back, right? So there's, no one's back is exposed, no, no one's back is left out, and they're very diverse. They're, very, they're diverse, and uh, well, they're almost close in height, but you're, it's because your hair, Calvin, it's kind of poofy. And, and you got, you, you know, there's this a sense of diversity in their stories, um, but they have each other's back. And when you have each other's back, you can't be broken into. There's no way to get to the center because you're always caring for each other. But as soon as one lets go or removes their hands from the space, then someone's back is exposed and the community begins to break. Like Calvin, if you just put your hands down, thank you. It's easy to come into the center and break the community. But when the community is closed, when we've got each other's back, 
We are a steady and strong and firm community. Now turn to the person next to you and say, I got your back. Tell somebody else, you got to say it like you believe it. I got your back. That's what it means to live perichorosis. Thank you, friends. Have some donuts. Yeah, hey, hey. Who told you to let go? Come on. Can you blame them? I offered them donuts. I mean, I know. <laughs> you see how easy it is to get distracted from getting each other's back when something beneficial pops into the story. Hey, donuts. Right. Now, you are only following instructions anyways, but I want to make this point. It is imperative that we are intentional about what it means to get each other's back. Because if we are not, when we get distracted, it's easy to break a community down. We've got to be able to be intentional to know how long we're supposed to be here. What are we doing here? Why are we doing this as a community? So that when the accuser comes along and says, donuts, I'm not calling myself Satan, but I might be, they'll know to stay. This is their formation. This is what keeps them strong. Now, one more thing. I'm going to give you $20 each. $20 each to keep your community together. Or for the first person who raises their hand, I'll give them $60 while the other two will not get their money. All right, three, one, two, three. Anyone? <laughs> talk about it, talk about it. Yeah, 60 bucks. That's half of brand new Nike shoes. It's not quite, but half. 60 bucks? 60 bucks? Oh, I see a hand coming up. No? Oh, hey, listen, community, this is solid. This is what it means to be a community. That's what I'm talking. Can we give them some love? All right. I'm going to let you all go. I'm going to make you one more offer. I'm going to double that. You still only get $20 each. But if one of you raises your hand, you get 120. Ready? One, two, three. Give them a big round of applause. $20 each. <laughs> you feel sad about that, don't you? <laughs> one of you are going to have nightmares tonight. Maybe two of you. I could have had $120. Was it worth my friends? And you see, Ty was thinking about it. But Calvin kept saying, hey, don't you do it. Don't you do it. You're going to break up the community. Exactly. That's what perichorosis means. It means to be indwelled with each other, to hold on, to have each other's back, even when the benefit to you is much better and much greater if you step away. It's interesting to me, we live in a world where everybody is constantly wanting to step up to the next piece of success, and oftentimes that means breaking away for your own benefit, when in actuality we could all be a better community if we took each other's back. Thank you, team. So perichorosis, Matthew chapter 4. This is the story of a, another kind of community. This is the community of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus and God the Creator. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Pirasmo, different form, same word, by the devil. 
Just before this happened, he's having baptism. The father comes out and he says, oh, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So you see, you see the dance here. The father opens the heavens. You see the dove come down and he says, this is my son. He points him out. I am well pleased. I affirm him in who he is. I am with him. I have his back. So the next moment that happens is the Holy Spirit then moves him into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness... He deals with temptation and trial. And as he's there under this trial, he's hungry, he's tired, he's been through a lot, and he's the savior of the world. He should have a few, uh, a few pieces of, of joy that he can do for himself as the savior of the world. So the devil comes to him, the accuser comes, and he says, turn these stones into bread. Verse 4. Uh, turn these stones into bread. What he is suggesting to Jesus is, use your power for your benefit. I mean, Jesus, you have all this power. Just use it. It's at your discretion. You've got the power to do whatever you want. No one's going to miss these rocks. They're just useless. They've got no place in the world. But in your hands, Jesus, you can feed yourself. You have the power. Use it for your benefit. And then the second temptation is that he takes him up to this high place and he says, jump. God will save you. God will have your back. He will, he will lift you up. And the subtle temptation here is use God's power for your own benefit. Call on God that he would use his infinite power to fulfill your immediate benefit that you need right now. And many of us find ourselves in this place because when God doesn't answer us, and we hit the ground and our knees are bleeding and we're tired and everything doesn't seem right, we tend to turn to God and say, God, this is your fault. You don't take care of me the way you should take care of me. You don't answer my prayers. I'm worthy of this. And we don't realize that the accuser has led us to this place to point at God as if God is some unloving being. But you and I believe at our core that God is love. And so we are confronted with this issue. God, why didn't you answer me for my benefit? The subtlety of what the accuser does when he takes Jesus to the roof. He says, look, jump off. God should save you, right? God should use his power for your benefit. And the third temptation, he tells Jesus, just bow to me. Bow down and worship me and I will give you all of this. And the subtle temptation here is give your power away to an oppressive agent for your benefit. Sell yourself out. You don't need to be, you don't need to have these good values. You don't need to make a good call. Nobody is watching you. Take what you need for you. Give out your power to some oppressive, broken agency that, that is going to uh, debacle the rest of the community for your benefit. And this is how Jesus responds. In verse 4, he says, man shall, not live alone, but man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is a bigger plan at work than my benefit, is what he says. I recognize the bigger plan. Because the father was there just a little while ago saying he is pleased in me. 
He's got my back. The Holy Spirit led me into the wilderness. Yes, I'm in the wilderness, but the Holy Spirit is here with me. I want you to know, you might be in a wilderness experience right now in your life, but the Holy Spirit is still with you. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what wilderness experience you may be going through. I don't know what pain or trauma or problems is just harvesting all around you, but I want you to know, even there, God is with you. And then in verse 10, sorry, in verse 7, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, what Jesus is saying, God's power is not for my sole benefit. Jesus recognizes his humanity in this place and says, it is not for my benefit to use God's power for whatever I desire. It is God's power to be used for God's desire to benefit the world around me. It is not for my benefit. God's power is not for my sole use alone. Though it may be tempting to want to use God's power for my benefit. And finally, in his third response, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, my power is for the purpose of benefiting the kingdom. I will not worship you or your ways. I will not worship broken systems. I will not follow blindly different leaders, whether it's leaders or systematic issues in our world. I will follow Jesus wherever Jesus leads. I will do as Jesus calls me to do. I will reconcile those who God wants me to reconcile. I will love who God wants me to love, regardless of what everyone else in the world says. I am stricken to follow Jesus. Turn to somebody and say, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. How hard must that have been for Jesus in that moment when he was by himself? He couldn't feel the power of the Holy Spirit. He couldn't see the angels who were going to minister to him. He, he had the faint voice of his father was at a distance. He, he was all alone in this place. And sometimes in our trials, we feel all alone. Sometimes when we're struggling with something, it is tempting for us not to come to the community and say, community, I need you. Because it's a lonely place and we're worried about what everyone else thinks or will do. But Jesus knows that soon the angels were going to minister to him. Whatever trial you are struggling through right now, I don't know what dark night you have to deal with. I do want you to know there is a God who is standing on your behalf. There is a community who's got your back. Maybe you're going through something and you need to talk to somebody about it. Maybe there's a vice that has just gotten out of control, just gotten way out of control. Maybe there's something in your life that it just keeps pulling you back down. It's making you a worse human being. I want you to know you are not alone. We've got your back. I don't know. Should I talk to pastor about this? I don't know. Pastor, I don't know. He's a pastor. He may not understand. It's funny to me how people always straighten up when they hear you're a pastor. Right, like you could be normal until, oh, you're a pastor? Well, uh, <laughs> sorry about that cussing, you know, the devil gets in me sometimes. It's crazy. I used to go to this gym a few years ago, and everybody got really tight. 
And they'd always come to me, you know, one at a time, they want to talk about their problems. And in this gym, a lot of people kind of dated each other. Like, was the thing, right? And they'd eat each other for a couple weeks, and then they'd date somebody else in the gym, and they'd all come to me and talk about stuff. And say, hey, hey, uh, Icky, would you, can we go for a walk? Sure, let's go for a walk. We go for a walk, and they tell me about their, you know, this and that. I'm just so confused, and we talk, and we talk. And one day, one girl says, man, you are so good at this. You ought to be like a counselor or a pastor or something. I said, oh, yeah, that's the thing. She's like, what's the thing? I said, I'm a pastor. What? And then she says, I am so sorry for all the cussing I do. Well, yeah, it's not the first time I've heard it. It's okay. It's, it's normal. It's, it's fine. I, I, I get where you're at. Sometimes in our church, we're, you know, I want to talk to the pastor. I've I got stuff I'm going through, but, but what if I expose myself too much? There is nothing you can say to us pastors that will make us, like, lose our minds or lose our way from Jesus. Come with it. We've got your back. Because that's what a community should do. It is, in the reflection of the perichorosis, the beautiful dance that happens in a community together. I just had a wedding on Thursday. Beautiful, beautiful young Adventist couple, both from Bakersfield, both been friends since they were children. They decided they were meant for each other. They got married by an Adventist pastor, because I'm Adventist. And we were at the reception, and the first thing they did was like the first dance. And they said, we're going to start right with the first dance. And this beautiful couple comes together, and they begin to just dance. And the first thing I thought of was, wow, you are super Adventist. Because it was really awkward dancing. Yeah, I don't know how to do this. I don't, we don't. Okay, let's just try, right? Like, wow, you're Adventist. Praise the Lord. And then secondly, the second thing that hit me was, you took a lot of time to practice. You could tell they were doing moves that were not beginner moves. They weren't very hard, but they had to work at it. They had to practice. They had to get a coach to coach them through this so that they can get to the place where they were here in front of others dancing for their relationship. That means, for me, it reminds me that as a church, we too must be intentional about practicing community, about working at it, about going out of our way, getting coaches, hanging out with our pastors, talking with spiritual mentors, connecting with other families so that we can continue to grow being better human beings. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. This is my favorite version of verse 13. Because I believe at the center of our temptations, our paraismos, it is the temptation to do things for ourselves. It is the temptation to pull away from the community and let someone's back go for my benefit. It is the temptation to keep my struggle and my trial deep inside because no one would understand me. It is a temptation to slog through this life painfully inside while wearing a smile on our face. 
I close with this from Andrea Torres. She writes for our kids this week. In the kids' packets, I don't know if you know this, but in our kids' packets, every week, someone prepares a lesson for the kids that's interactive that matches the sermons, which means Andrea Torres, who's been working on this, has to gouge at me all week long and say, hey, is your sermon done? Hey, can I get some things that's gonna make sense? And she sent me this piece after I sent her my rubbish. And she says, does this sound about right? And I said, oh, perfect. So I'd like to end the sermon with this little paragraph that your kids, if they picked up one of those kids' things, has probably read or is reading right now or can read along. Sometimes it feels like life is full of trials and temptations. The devil really likes to make us feel that way. It's easy to get weighed down by the feeling and worry about ourselves. What if we switched our view from me to we? When we take our eyes off of ourselves, we are able to see what they are needing. And I can guarantee you, you will lose sight of yourself and your own struggles. I think no more beautiful words than these to end our time today. You are not by yourself. And the temptation to walk this life for your self-benefit or for my self-benefit or for our self-benefit is nowhere in comparison to the beautiful life we can do when we have each other's back and live life together.